You're listening to Strictly Business Podcast with Lindsay Williams. Welcome to the business of money. We're joined by Delphine Govender from Perpetua. We've got uh, Mia Kruger, Kruger International, David Shapiro, Sassman Securities, and Lindsay Williams from strictlybusinesspodcast.com. Delphine, I'm going to throw it to you off the bat here on NASPAS process. I know you've been keeping in a keen eye on the situation. Give us the lowdown. Well, um, this week, Bronwyn was really all about um, the Chinese regulations and the, the crackdown that actually happened last weekend in terms of the online tutoring space. Um, and, you know, very unprecedented, um, massively damaging business models for those businesses. But also one of the components was um, kind of effectively de- declaring illegal, you know, foreign ownership of these entities through certain structures. And then that just threw a massive spotlight um, onto the Chinese tech companies um, and obviously particularly the likes of Tencent, Alibaba, and they um, and then this, the, the whole Chinese index or tech index took a massive um, hit this week. Um, and then we saw that translate directly through to NASPAS and process. Uh, I think, you know, one of the most important points is that um, what came into kind of the high risk purview this week was that the structures in which um, the Tencent asset is owned is called a VIE, variable interest entity. And it's, that's the only way the Chinese government, um, well, it's actually that uh, certain industries are controlled in terms of foreign ownership. And this is the mechanism. It's effectively just a mechanism or a structure through which you own a 10 cent asset uh, on the Hong Kong listing. Um, and the, the legality of that structure has never been tested. And as a result, the Chinese government, as it showed last weekend, could effectively just declare a structure illegal, you know, at a stroke of a pen. And that's what happened. And, and unfortunately, what it's meant is that it's, it's raised the regulatory risk again around the certainty of access to those assets. In fact, NASPERS and process shareholders don't actually have access to the underlying assets in Tencent. They only really have access to the rights to the, of the profits and the dividends, etc. Mm-hmm. That's how the VIE structure work, uh, works. So we had that happen in the course of the week. It doesn't, you know, damage Tencent's business, Tencent's underlying business is still very much mainland China. That business model is largely intact. You know, it's really, and, and, and the Chinese uh, government needs those tech companies in terms of innovation, but it really started to bring into question um, the general risks uh, that exist when you invest in VIE structures, particularly Chinese tech. David, I've just conducted an interview with a a chap in Hong Kong for the last 45 minutes. And what came across, he's a Chinese gentleman uh, working for a Western asset manager, but based in Hong Kong. And I asked him to explain what has gone on when it started with Alibaba uh, and their pay platform and the cancellation of the listing and then going to DD and now going to the education companies. And what came across in his introduction, lengthy introduction incidentally, is that we are way way apart, poles apart when it comes to the way that China looks at business and the way that the, for example, the United States looks at business. And he explained the ideological philosophy of what has gone on. And he also went to great pains to to tell me that behind closed doors, there was a meeting from the State Council of China and investment banks. And although those details are not sketchy, but certainly um, private, uh, it, it just came. It just came to me that um, they have a one way of doing things, and we have another way of doing things. And hopefully, there can be some meeting in the middle ground. But have you been scared, David, by what's happened recently? I'm scared to a point. Look, China is a big economy. We can't ignore it. We can't ignore their purchasing power, and we can't ignore 
what they add to global growth on an annual basis. You know, they add more than America, even though America grows, you get more growth from China, maybe not last year, but uh, still on an ongoing basis. And sooner or later, they will catch up with America. So we can't ignore that. They have a population of 1.3 billion people. The middle class is growing, they're spending. They, the, they, you know, they're part of the uh, purchases of LVMH and Kering and Hermes and all the luxury goods, and not only that, commodities uh, and so on. So we can't ignore it. But I think you have to be very careful how you pay it, and I think you have to moderate the extent to which you're exposed simply because of the risks. You want to know that your rights are protected by law. You don't want to forfeit those rights, because as Delphine said, at the stroke of a pen, they can uh, negate anything that you hold. And to me, that's the big risk. So I'm saying, by all means, go into China, but just moderate your risk. Keep it at a level that you're comfortable with. And I think, Lindsay, I think that's what we're seeing now. You're going to see a lot more fund managers over this weekend downgrading their exposure from overweight to neutral. And that's where there's going to be start seeing a little more selling on some of those companies. Mia, how are you viewing uh, the, the situation? And will you be one of those fund managers uh, downgrading your weighting? Well, I think the, the importance, as David and Delphine both explained beautifully, is the fact that uh, the whole the whole idea of shareholding up until now, that people thought they were all shareholder of, of shares in 10 cent, etc., is actually all governed by contract. So you're not really, you don't really have many rights on that. And um, and it's like, you know, it puts you in a very difficult position. So we've seen how how it's affected. the markets realize it. I actually don't understand how the market only realized it now as uh, all this information has been out in the open. You could have read all the contracts, how it works, but it seems like people, um, you know, prefer to just go with the herd. So, and in the case, as I explained uh, in a previous conversation as well, is that uh, the fact that both Nasdaq and Price still remain such a large part of our local, uh, our local balls, it actually has pulled back quite uh, quite a bit now. But it still is the dominant two shares in 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 the top forty, and. Um, and that makes it very, very difficult for any fund manager in South Africa who's benchmarked against the, uh, the the index to really sell a lot of it. Because if there's a bounce or a, a, um, a recovery, they'll be far behind. So it makes it very difficult. Also, from all the tracker funds that's invested in these uh, in these uh, structures and in these uh, shares, it's it's the same story. They won't sell it because they follow the benchmark. So there are various things to consider here. We, as I've mentioned to you in the past, have a very broad diversification. But still, we do have a large exposure to to uh, to Nasdaq and Proces. Like most South Africans, there's really no South African with any investment that have no. I, okay, there might be, but it's it's very <laughs> uncommon for investors in South Africa to have no exposure. I, I, I'm going to ask Pete for you. <laughs> I must ask Pete if he's yeah. got exposure. <laughs> but if Pete has any form of uh, of um, of pension fund that he's still exposed to in any way, he probably still have a, uh, some exposure to it. Unfortunately, <laughs> I know he wouldn't want. It. But yeah, that's the reality of the fact. Unfortunately, so we'll have to see how this plays out. An interesting uh, other view that I may be just comment on before um, handing over to Lindsay is the fact that I read a very interesting remark 
uh, from some fund managers based in China. And their view, being Chinese, is very different to the Western view mm. on all these regulations being imposed. So the Western media, which is everything we all read mostly, um, is, is, is much uh, more critical in terms of how the government acts, what the government does. But most people within China are part of the middle class, which David alluded to has grown and has been strengthened in terms of financial well-being over the past couple of years. And they are very happy with what the government does. Most of them are supporters of the Chinese Communist Party. And in, um, in, in, in the Chinese Communist Party, doing many things that benefit the majority of people in China, obviously they have their own agenda as well. But uh, it's quite interesting for me to read those uh, commentaries coming directly out of China instead of from, from Western media. And then just the last thing is that um, Delphine referred to, you don't really only have exposure to China. You don't have to take exposure to China only through VIE structures. You can actually go in various other companies that's not controlled by VIE structures and, and get exposure in that way. And I think that's sort of where uh, most people will be starting to look now. Tech was obviously in the front and easy to, to follow for everyone. It's talked about everywhere. You can find a lot of information on it. The rest, not that easy. Wouldn't it be fantastic if South Africa could actually be as serious about educating young people as yeah. China is? I mean, it's the first foundation of a, the future development of a country to have people that are educated. But that's another story. Uh, while we're on tech, let's stay with tech and uh, go to big tech in the United States of America, because these numbers have been unbelievable, Delphine. Yeah. Last night, OK, Amazon, uh, I think they grew their earnings by 26%. Uh, compared to last year and they uh, warned that this growth can't continue because apparently people like David Shapiro are going out uh, and, and buying stuff from shops because he likes to you know, mix with people and annoy them. Uh, but more, uh, more seriously, there is a, now going to be a sort of withdrawal of people shopping online because they want to go out and mingle. Um, but when you, when you see these numbers, Delphine, what is your attitude? Do you say, well, it's all ready baked into the price or, and there might be a little bit of sell, of sell off, but I'm a lurking buyer. What's your approach to yeah. this? Look, I think, uh, you know, there's, there's really two, um, there's two points to that, to that answer. The first is um, the market reacted because, you know, the very bullish narrative um, that's been really belying kind of the short term sentiment and the share price, um, you know, it, just completely common sense as even if we had to have a conversation perhaps with take a lot in South Africa who's had kind of stupendous, you know, growth rates um, because of, of the lockdown, et cetera, and, and, and just the volumes through e-commerce. Um, the narrative, as one would expect, common sense from from Amazon is uh, we can't maintain these these rates of growth, you know, because people are obviously, you know, doing you know offline shopping as well. Um, so that's the narrative that affects the, the the short term kind of sentiment into the share price. I mean, the longer term, you know, the, the real question about do you use these opportunities to invest for the long term? And I think perhaps the best investors in businesses like Amazon are the ones that just never sold their shares because they've just actually just compounded and compounded and compounded. And so you really have to. Um, and, and there's going to be a cohort of shares, I guess, and businesses in your portfolio that perhaps, you know, as, as Buffett says, if you lock up the stock market, you know, or shut down the stock market for, for 10 years and you come back in a decade, they, they're, going to be, they're going to be bigger businesses. And I think Amazon's one of those businesses that has sat and will continue to sit squarely in that category. It has a moat. 
it has a wide moat and it has an enduring and, and a moat importantly that it can expand um, because of its ability to, to aggregate. Quite a few of the other companies we're seeing are having struggles to maintain their moats. They're being disrupted. Um, I think at the margin, there will always be, and, and it's interesting because big techs actually cannibalizing each other. Once you've taken out kind of the, the, the mainstream status quo offline traditional competition, then you start eating each other's lunch. So the most likely competition, you know, for an Amazon is likely to come, you know, from whether it's Google or, you know, Alphabet, et cetera, or, or Facebook or Instagram, et cetera. So you tend to find that that will be where their challenge lies. Um, I personally don't own Amazon. Obviously, it's a big regret. It was one of those errors of omission. Mm-hmm. Um, but at the same time, um, I'm, I would be surprised if the business was, didn't compound just at the rate of growth. It simply cannot maintain its rate of growth. None of big tech will be able to just because of their sheer, the, the vast, I mean, I think those, those five top five companies account for, you know, a 25% or 23% of the profits of the whole S&P, which means, you know, there's 495 shares that account for the rest. So you tend to find that just probabilistically there's better value on a short-term basis in some of those stocks outside of big tech, but they have a massive moat. Let's build on this conversation and, and bearing in mind, uh, Mia and David, uh, our other audiences are not the same audiences as today. So don't feel as though you are repeating yourselves. I want to build to the, the tech portfolio, David, that uh, you are currently alluding to. And the, those are the A's in the, um, the alphabet. So, so let's go there. You asked us, what's my favorite stock? And I said, okay, well, let's start with A's. Let's start with Adobe and then we go on to Amazon and then we go on to Alphabet and we go on to ASML, which is still my best company, which is the Eindhoven uh, business that that makes the machines that make the chips. And uh, the other one is a payment company in in Holland as well called ADYEN. But what you, which is a a wonderful platform that's growing uh, in, in the payment segment. So I'm saying that's on the A's. You know, I said, next week we'll do the Bs. Just to take Delphine's point further, how do you, no matter how big that moat is, you've got to maintain it. And this is where the answer lies. When you look at businesses, and I've mentioned this point before, look at the R&D. Look what they hold back to reinvest and look where they're going. When Zuckerberg was attacked the other day on Facebook uh, about slowing down advertising because of the same problem that Amazon is facing, you know, he, he highlighted where else they're going, where they're looking for. The, the uh, cannibalization is taking place because he wants to go into e-commerce as well. But look at those businesses. They've got the might and power, you know, to continue mm-hmm. growing into new segments as well. So don't dismiss them because they happen to miss uh, on guidance or they, they're lowering their guidance for the reasons that we've discussed. So I still think that you've got to have a, a fair choice of, of tech in a portfolio. I'm going to stick with the A theme, please, David. And I'll put this to Mia now. Um, I've got two A's. Um, it's not uh, the Automobile Association or Alcoholics Anonymous. It's Anglo-American PLC, blockbuster numbers coming out of a company that is not all within the bounds of uh, South Africa's borders, but certainly still very much associated with South Africa. And they really came out with spectacular numbers and they're behaving responsibly, they're paying dividends and they're making hay while the sun shines, Mia. 
Yes, no, I mean, and they are big supporters of our president. So that was very interesting also this week coming out, uh, supporting South Africa, saying that they will be investing money in South Africa and that they want to be part of a turnaround in the country after what we saw two weeks ago. Uh, so that I found positive as well. They did really do what David always say, he hopes mining companies will do, and that's pay out a lot of the money that they made. It was about a third of the money that they, they, uh, they made in profits that they are paying out in dividends, a special dividend, a normal dividend, and they're buying back some shares. So they're really uh, doing good to, to the shareholders, not only uh, you know, investing a lot of money into, into mines in South Africa, but uh, you know, I think if you consider the underlying trend, the fact that we all know this is cyclical, we know that the government in South Africa has used the, the this uh, profit that they haven't, uh, you know, they haven't bargained on as a, as a windfall to pay a 350 rand grant now to people. Unfortunately, the reality is how how this helps South Africa now is not going to be there to help us uh, through all times in the future. We know that commodity prices are cyclical. So, but that's a whole the conversation on, on, on the economical side in South Africa. To get back to the, to, uh, to the commodity companies and mining companies in South Africa, I found it also particularly uh, interesting how the beers came out and they mentioned that they had very strong demand uh, from, from the US and from China. And that just plays into the theme that we've also discussed alongside tech now for a while uh, of luxury goods and how people are spending a lot of money on luxury goods and how when Richmond came out with the first numbers, they just showed us that and the beers now being part of that stable showed us uh, that the trend is real um, and that there's a very strong recovery in luxury good companies as well. So mining luxury goods, uh, I'm, I'm sure they, they really play into each other's hands, but um, interesting to see how they go together really so fast. I'm mindful of the time. We need to move to stocks of interest. I'm going to open up here with uh, Delphine. Uh, Lindsay, you can pick up as we drive stocks of interest around the table. Thank you. Delphine, over to you. Yeah, so I think what's been interesting in this last uh, two weeks is obviously following, you know, the the rights and the violent rights in um, in in Durban, particularly KZN. Uh, a lot of monitoring, you know, resets on on some of those cyclical companies that would have been affected. Particularly, obviously, the property companies. We saw them kind of take a smack in the middle of the month. Um, some of the retailers that were particularly exposed, the likes of MassMart, um, you know, some of the other um, food retailers, etc. And then. Um, Obviously, just you know, just general consumer-facing companies, and then obviously this week we also saw uh, Tiger Brands, unfortunately, with you know some issues with um, you know faulty packaging and a massive recall on their crew product. So for me, I think what's been of interest are um, particularly some of this, the, the the retailers and some of the banks. Um, it's largely driven by you know the, again you have to separate the fact that. Um, it's fantastic that we need to see more companies like Anglo that Mia referred to coming through to really support the structural changes we need to see in this economy, particularly that we saw surfaced and, and perhaps some, you know, the scariest reality in South Africa is our, our, our inequality. Um, so we have the wealthiest 3,500 people in South Africa. That's only 3,500 people that command wealth that is more than 32 million people. Now, there's nowhere else in the world that that sort of extreme reality exists. And so as we look through 
um, you know, we, we talk about investing in retailers and consumer stocks and banks, but if we don't have the majority of the population economically active, able, you know, in gainful employment, particularly the youth, what is the long-term true prognosis for the business cases of retailers or consumer companies, et cetera? You know, we can talk um, with much more optimism about Amazon, et cetera, because we can see kind of long-term, you know, structural trends. The hard part in South Africa is how do you, how can I sit here today with a high level of optimism telling you put, put, you know, put your money in South African retailers for 10 years when they're majority, you know, predominantly domestically oriented to a domestic consumer. Um, and so we do, to take that long-term view, you really do need to have um, a, a high level of belief and conviction that we're going to see execution on the actions and the policies that belie economic you know, reconstruction and recovery. On the short-term view, however, we're investors. And one thing we've discovered is that actually, or we know through kind of reality, is that um, GDP growth and stock market performance is actually not as causally connected as one would believe. In fact, it's corporate earnings growth. And so what we're seeing for the next year or two is that in that cohort of companies, the retailers, so MassMart and, and Truett's, largely because of, of this reason, not because I think there's a 10-year story, but because I think there's an earnings recovery story coming that the market's not pricing. Jolly good. Uh, Mia, you've chosen, uh, as far as I can remember, in the past, Nike and Starbucks, um, aspirational brands to, to certain people. What have you got this week? And Apple. You can't leave Apple out of the equation. She also chose Apple. Oh, David's the Apple man. He's going to the big Apple, so he's the Apple buyer. So let's, uh, let's stick with the, the two I just mentioned. But what have you, have you, have you got a real company this week? I thought I would be able to stick with the A theme and say, um, talk a lot about Apple again. But you all know how much I, uh, I, I like the company and how uh, strong the company is. So I can leave that for over a couple of months. We can revisit that. But with the A theme, it's not only uh, Amazon. And where we saw Amazon uh, come out last night, slightly disappointed on the revenue side. I'm going to talk about Amazon and about Microsoft. Uh, they really showed us that cloud computing worldwide is booming. Uh, we, we saw the uh, Amazon Web Services grow by 37% over the last quarter, much stronger than what we see for the rest of the business. Their whole other business, which is only a small part really of their business, grew by 87%. That's their services, advertising, and uh, web services, which is the, the cloud computing. And then when we look at the Microsoft Azure, we saw the same story. Microsoft Azure is one of, also one of the strongest players in the market, and they um, they grew their web services by 30% over the last quarter. So those two areas, part of that moat that Alphine and, and uh, David alluded to, that is still the growing parts of the moat. And um, those are the sorts of things that we need to pay attention to and look at. And that's also A for advertising is where, uh, where Google came in and they made a lot of money on advertising because people spend more time on YouTube, more time online, and people like, uh, like to be, well, these companies benefit a lot from these advertising campaigns that they run. And that's what really the business model of Google and, um, and YouTube. So I think I've covered a couple there. David, I hope that Mia hasn't stolen your thunder there, and you've got something different. Or you <laughs> no, I, 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 I'm going to go from one extreme to the other. Um, I, you know, my heart lies in in tech and and growth companies, but uh, I make a habit of trying to go through every set of results that comes through on the JSC, um, and and of course overseas. Is, uh, and and this week you've got to look at the junior miners. I mean, we have to look at how these companies have swung around from 
wildly negative to grossly positive. You know, not the Anglos or Kumbas and that, but if you look at a company like Marafi, which we have just basically dismissed, I mean, it's a non-existent uh, company that, that really is nothing more than owns a joint venture in a ferrochrome business with, with, uh, with uh, Glencore. And I mean, the earnings are staggering and the amount of cash on their balance sheet makes up about 30 or 40% of their share price. And I looked at Arsenal Middle as well. And, uh, you know, it's, it's the share price has gone up dramatically. I've got to spend a lot more time going through steel production. Uh, but I saw 223 earnings and for a share price, and that was half year, that's trading at six or seven rand. Now, I might have got the decimal point wrong. I am an accountant, but sometimes I do put the decimal point in the wrong place, and I might have got it completely wrong. No but, wonder some of these companies had so many problems when you were auditing them in the past, David. But never, never mind. <laughs> Sorry? I said, no wonder so many companies had problems when you were auditing them. <laughs> yeah. uh, because you put the point in the wrong place. You've been reflecting that. The opposite. Anyway, sorry. Uh, no, but, but, but the point being is that I think we've underestimated what the impact's going to be on the mining segment. A lot of these companies are not, you know, a lot of mining companies are not listed in that. So um, I'm, I'm with Delphine and Mia, and I must thank them for participating next week in something that uh, Leila Fari is organizing, or I got her to organize, which is uh, a seminar just to share our views with, you know, with people, with, with younger investors, etc. And the theme that I'm focusing on is around mining and the companies that are going to benefit from it. And I think this is something that, is, that can be very useful for young investors or, you know, people who like to uh, you know, who like to manage their own portfolios. What, what, so your particular stock of interest for this show? Well, I, I don't want to say, uh, I'll say Marafi, but um, I think it's more a segment, you know, the more the junior miners that I'm going to uh, focus on. You know, there was a, there's a mine called Elfaman, and when the chap came to promote this tin mine somewhere in the DRC, you know, we all were very cynical. But, I mean, you must have a look at the profits they they're making, and I thought that tin was used to make coup cans, you know, for Tiger Brands, but it isn't. It's used for uh, it's used for, for soldering in the uh, in the electronics industry, and I mean, it's just going through the roof. So, so oh, just just for fun, have a look at some of these companies, yeah. Oh, it's an unusual U-turn for David Shapiro, Bromman, because normally he ignores commodity companies because he doesn't understand. Um, or has, has claims not to understand, let me qualify that, the, the cyclicality of commodities and it's out of his control. But he's suddenly coming around to this. And I think that's very interesting. The smaller companies that are not covered by the big, big asset managers, um, but maybe should be looked at by retail investors. Bronwyn, can you wrap up the show this week? Sure. Although I'm not going to come with the, the quirky outros, Lindsay Williams, strictlybusinesspodcast.com, David Shapiro, Assassin Securities, Mia Kruger, Kruger International, and Dolphine Govender from Perpetua. Thank you very much for joining us on The Business of Money. The views and opinions expressed in these podcasts are those of Lindsay Williams and various contributors and do not reflect the policy, position, or opinion of any other agency, organization, employer, or company associated with strictlybusinesspodcast.com. Assumptions made on the analyses are not reflective of the position of any other entity other than the speaker or the author. And since we are critically thinking human beings, these views are always subject to change, revision, and rethinking at any time. Please do not hold us to them in perpetuity.